Hello there and welcome back to Cuckoo. You are with me, Alex. In today's episode, trigger warning, I will be talking about suicide and self-harm. I'll also be talking about various mental health services, including inpatient and psychiatric facilities. If those are possible triggers for you, maybe give this one a miss. For this episode, I am going to just talk a little bit about the structure of mental health services in Australia. And it can be really confusing as a young person trying to figure out where to go to get help, trying to figure out how all the services fit together and what each of them do. And as a family member or a friend or a loved one, it can be really confusing to know where you can go or encourage your loved one to go if they need help. Okay, so I'm going to paint you a bit of a map, Hope, so that you can start to understand how things work and how it all fits together and so you know exactly where to go to get the right level of help for you and I'm going to cover what to do if you don't get the help that you need. Very important. Let's start out with the lowest acuity intervention. So that means if you're having a mental health struggle, it's not super urgent or super acute. So acute being, you know, somebody who's actively suicidal or uh, somebody who is very, very mentally unwell, that would be a high level of acuity. On the lower end of that scale might be somebody who's been feeling depressed for a while and they're, you know, feeling like maybe this isn't normal or maybe they're experiencing some anxiety symptoms that they're noticing are starting to affect their life. At that level where there's no life-threatening issues going on, the first place to go would be your GP. If you go and see a GP, now it doesn't have to be your normal GP, it can be any GP. I know some young people feel like I don't want to see my family GP because they see my parents and I'm afraid they're going to tell my parents. So you don't need to go to your normal GP. You can go to any GP. And basically what you say to them is, I've got some concerns about my mental health. You describe what you've been concerned about and you ask them for a referral to a uh, mental health professional, therapist, counsellor, different words. Okay. Therapist, counselor, they'll know what you're talking about. What then happens is that the GP does what's called a mental health care plan. And that mental health care plan allows you to claim rebates on therapy sessions for mental health. So they'll jot down your symptoms. They'll put a diagnosis, which is often something very vague, like maybe mixed depression and anxiety or depression or something like that. And, you know, that the plan is to get you some counselling. They might also talk to you about medication and whether medication would be recommended for your particular issues and symptoms. And then you can have a discussion and make decisions about that. But for most mental health conditions, therapy is going to be recommended. They will also then give you the name and details of a mental health professional that you can contact and sometimes a referral letter. You can go with the professional that they recommend. You know, most GPs will have a mental health therapist or counsellor associated with their practice that they can recommend, but you can also choose your own. So if you have someone in mind or you've heard from family or friends about somebody good or you've done your own research online and you've found someone you want to go to, then you can just take that referral to them. You don't need to change the name or do anything like that. 
Some mental health providers are accredited under mental uh, under Medicare and some aren't. Okay, so I'll explain that. Let's say you've gone to your GP and you said, look, I'm feeling really depressed. I've been feeling depressed for quite some time. I'm also feeling quite anxious. I'd like to go and see somebody. They've given you the paperwork. They've talked to you about medications. They've said, come back in a couple of weeks. We'll see how you're going. Sent you off with your paperwork. Okay. So then what you need to do from there is that you call up a private provider of your choice. There are different words that private providers use to describe themselves and private providers, usually uh, professionals who deal with mild to moderate mental health issues. So private providers in the community, so psychologists, accredited mental health social workers, sometimes accredited mental health OTs, counsellors, These are all terms for people who you can see privately in the community who are mental health experts. Now, depending on their professional background and their professional qualifications, you may be able to get Medicare rebates to see them, but you may not. So for example, with counsellors, you usually can't claim Medicare rebates. um, So you can't use that GP referral to get you discounts. However, they can still be very highly trained and experienced individuals. And they usually charge less than, say, you know, clinical psychologists or people like that where you can get rebates. So my recommendation is always to find someone who specializes in the thing that you're struggling with. So if you're struggling with anxiety, find somebody who works with that day in and day out. If you're a young person, find somebody who works with teenagers or young people, right? That's really important. If you're struggling with an eating disorder or body issues or drug and alcohol issues or self-harm or trauma, find somebody who specializes in that. Make sure that they are registered with the appropriate bodies, okay? So make sure that they have, you know, some sort of professional body that endorses them. For counsellors, it could be the Australian Counselling Society. Uh, For social workers, it could be the Australian Association of Social Work. That's a mouthful. Australian Association of Social Workers. Or all psychologists need to uh, be registered with APRA. So you just want to make sure that they are registered and don't go with the fanciest website either. Go for the person who specializes in what you're dealing with. Word of mouth recommendations are also really, really helpful. Now, this is tricky because nobody wants to admit that they've been in therapy. So have these conversations and ask people one-on-one. So say, hey, I've been having a few issues with this. I'm looking for, you know, a therapist. Do you know of anybody good? And you'll often find people will say, oh, yeah, I saw somebody a while back or my, you know, my teenager saw someone a while back. Those are often great recommendations to go with because you know that people have had a good experience. Now, please keep in mind that there are certain private mental health providers who, because they're registered with APRA, they are not allowed to have client testimonials on their websites And they have other rules around how they market themselves. So just be careful because some providers 
of different services. I'm not even going to say counsellors, but people that don't have formal registration, you know, people like life coaches. Now, I'm not bagging life coaches. Life coaches can be great. But if you have mental health symptoms, you need somebody who has mental health experience. Anybody can call themselves a life coach. They don't have to have done any formal study in mental health. Okay, so not a great, not a great option. I would not recommend that. But people like that, they're not required to meet all these guidelines by their registered body. So they can have great testimonials, fancy websites, wonderful offers, cheap prices, not necessarily your best bet. So go with somebody who is actually endorsed by a professional body. And if you're not sure, then ask them, send them an email and say, hey, just checking, are you a member of a professional counseling body? So when you go to a private provider, basically what that looks like is you'll go to their office, wherever that is, and you'll generally have a 50-minute appointment, so just short of an hour, a 50-minute appointment where you'll talk about, you know, your mental health stuff, and they'll give you skills and strategies to help with those symptoms and explore whatever is going on, okay? So what people typically think of as counseling sessions. Now, those sessions might be weekly, they might be fortnightly, they might be monthly. It depends on the provider's availability and your needs and how those fit together. It can be hard to find providers with short waiting lists in the country at the moment. So we're in 2022, waiting lists can be quite long, but not always. Do not sit on a waiting list for more than eight weeks. Shop around. By the time you get there, you might have lost that momentum to talk and to seek help. So try to get into somebody within a few weeks if you can. Now, if you live in a regional or rural area, then your options are going to be more limited in regards to the amount of providers in your area. But we now have telehealth, right? So you can do sessions on Zoom or on the phone with accredited providers And you can claim Medicare rebates for those sessions. So that is well worth looking up. Thank you, COVID, for introducing that option to us all. Okay, so you can look outside of your area. The deal with Medicare rebates, when I say Medicare rebates, the way it works is that say somebody comes to see me at my private practice and they come for a session and let's say the session is $200 and Medicare will pay a rebate of $90 to them to see me. What that means is they come and see me, they pay their $200, and then Medicare will pay them back $90 per session. And at the moment, people can have up to 20 sessions that attract rebates. That is of 2022. And that is, thank you again, COVID. Uh, There's an extra 10 sessions. However, normally, pre-COVID, it was 10 sessions per year you could get rebates for. That does not mean you can only have a maximum of 10 sessions. It just means that you can only get rebates for a maximum of 10 sessions. And usually your GP will refer you for six sessions. And then after six, you go back. And if you want more and your therapist thinks you need more, you can ask for another four and they do you just another four for that. So there's paperwork involved. There's visits involved. Now, you do not have to go through your GP if you do not want to. You can simply find an accredited, reputable mental health professional 
that you want to see and you can just contact them and book in. You don't need a referral. However, it just means that you can't claim rebates. That's all it means. But I have plenty of clients who are like, you know what, I don't want to muck around with all that paperwork. I'm happy to pay. And they just book in and they don't worry about it. So you can also do that. People often ask me about bulk billing services for counselling. Let me talk to you about bulk billing. So bulk billing means that you go to see a professional and if they bulk bill you, that means that they charge your services completely under Medicare and you don't pay anything out of pocket. So I used to do this back in the day when I first started. So a client would need a GP referral form. And as long as they had that, I would process the session through Medicare Medicare would pay me for the session and the client pays nothing out of pocket. Now, if you can find a provider that does that, um, often they might be new in the private practice space, uh, but they might still be really good. If you need to save money in that way and finances are tight, by all means, go with someone who bulk bills. However, um, in most areas, you're going to struggle to find anybody that bulk bills. Uh, Services like Headspace, they bulk bill. However, the waiting lists are very long for obvious reasons. So again, I would recommend that you consider if you can afford it, paying out of pocket before you sit on a waiting list for more than eight weeks. I just think that the chances of you keeping that momentum going while you're waiting are very low and you'll probably just bail on the appointment. Let's be real. I would suggest that you budget accordingly. And if you find a therapist that you like, then just factor that into your budget. I know that money can be tight for people. And I know that some people have limited financial means, but if you can afford it, then pay for your therapy, invest in your therapy, because it also means you have more skin in the game. It also means that you're going to make sure you get the most out of your sessions with your therapist. And from a therapist point of view, um, when I used to bulk bill, I had lots of people not show up. I had lots of people late cancel. People were not as invested in their care because they didn't have any skin in, in the game. Now that people pay to see me, those cancellations and no-shows are much less, which is great for you, the client, right? You want to make sure if you have a session that you're going to go to that session and you're not going to let anxiety or fear get in the way. So seeing somebody for counseling in the community, again, usually mild to moderate mental health presentations. However, there are some providers like myself who work with higher level acuity. So I work a lot with people where there's self-harm and suicidal thoughts going on. I do a kind of therapy that is specifically targeted for those issues. So there are those of us around who work with higher levels of acuity. Again, just do some research or ask your GP or family or friends for recommendations. What if the issues that you're struggling with are more serious than what I've described? What if you are really struggling day to day to even just get through the days, right? What if you're feeling really unsafe, you're struggling a lot with thoughts of harming yourself, and you feel like you really need help now and you need quite a lot of it? So most people will tell you, Go to your local emergency department and they'll, they'll assess you there and they'll link you in with the local child and adolescent mental health service. 
Now, this is the public service. So as things get more severe, we start to move out of the private service realm, GPs and private therapists, and we're moving into the public services. So public services deal with higher level acuity issues. Now, being public services, we need to consider that, number one, resources can be tight depending on the area that you live in, staffing for those services, financial backing for those services, high demand for those services, all play a part in what kind of a service you actually get. Also, we know that going to your local emergency department for a mental health issue can be met with uh, mixed reactions from the staff there. Not their fault at all. I've worked in emergency departments, but unless, you know, you're on fire, a lot of emergency teams will not be inclined to rush you through or they'll tell you to go home with a phone number. Presenting to an emergency department really is restricted for if you absolutely cannot stay safe today right? In the next 24 hours. If you are having really intense suicidal thoughts and you don't feel like you can stay safe or intense thoughts of harming someone else physically, then you want to go to ED and you just need to tell them that. Don't beat around the bush. You need to tell them exactly what the risk is because that's what they're assessing you on. What is the risk? If you dance around the issue and sugarcoat it, they're going to send you back home with a phone number, which might not be what you need. Now, if you're trying to get help for a family member or a young person in your family, then you need to do the same. You need to be their advocate and you need to say to the ED staff really bluntly, here are the risks that are going on. This is what this person is saying to me. They are not safe and we need help now. Okay, you've got to be super blunt about it. Now, what they will do if you come into an emergency department like that, or if you come into an emergency department after a self-harm attempt, then what they will do is that they will tend to your medical needs and make sure that medically you are stable. And then they will get the mental health team in the hospital to come and see you. So that might be a doctor, that might be a mental health nurse, that might be a couple of mental health professionals. It depends on the area that you're in. Some hospitals have the mental health community teams come into the hospital to see people and other emergency departments have their own mental health specialists on staff there all the time. So they will assess you, they'll figure out what's going on and what they're assessing is number one, what is the level of risk? Do you need to be in hospital as an inpatient or can you be managed at home as an outpatient with support? Again, you got to be really honest with them. And if you're advocating for your loved one, you need to be really honest about what kind of support you can provide. If you are not comfortable with them being at home and supporting them, that means being with them the whole time if necessary, then you need to tell them that. There are emergency departments that have things called PEC units. So that stands for Psychiatric Emergency Care Centres. Now, these are parts of the emergency department that are dedicated to psychiatric and mental health issues. And for people that need a brief stay in hospital because of their risk, or there are no beds in the mental health facilities and they're waiting for a bed. Okay, so they they fall into those two categories. Now for young people, so I'm talking here up to the age of 
16 to 18, between 16 and 18 is a gray area, meaning that sometimes, you know, 17 year olds will be sent to adult inpatient units and some will be sent to adolescent inpatient beds. Most of the time, under 16s, if they present to emergency and they need to be admitted to hospital because their mental health is that severe, then they will put them in an adolescent medical ward and have the mental health team see them for reviews. Uh, There are some adolescent mental health inpatient units in Australia. However, they are few and far between, so beds are very hard to get. So the mental health team will assess whether you need a brief stay in hospital, a long stay in hospital or no stay in hospital, and then they'll talk you through those options. Now, being admitted to a psychiatric facility is obviously very confronting and some people get quite scared about that. On the other hand, some people really want that. They feel like that'll be a safe place for them to go. So it really varies. So if the mental health team decide, yep, this person really needs a longer mental health admission. So this often happens if somebody is experiencing psychosis. Now, psychosis is a group of symptoms where people lose touch with reality. So it can include hallucinations, delusions, things like that. They might be admitted for a longer period of time in an inpatient unit. Other mental health conditions might be, you know, serious suicide attempts. Uh, They might decide to keep somebody for a longer period of time. However, not always. That really varies depending on who assesses you and, you know, what's going on. It's a little inconsistent, unfortunately. There are some symptoms that you'll often hear are not recommended or some conditions that are not recommended for inpatient stays. And one of those conditions is borderline personality disorder, include non-suicidal self-harm, so things like cutting and and things like that, self-injury. There is some research to suggest that people who are experiencing those conditions or those symptoms can get worse if they have long hospital admissions. So you might hear doctors say, oh, a hospital admission is not recommended for you if that is your situation. However, if you are not safe to go home, then say that. Brief hospital admissions are necessary sometimes, even if you're struggling with those issues or if you have that diagnosis. It's really all about risk. And also, if you don't have people who can stay with you all the time at home and make sure that you're safe, then a brief admission might be necessary. Emergency departments are typically not the nicest place to be when you're struggling with your mental health. Inpatient units vary. Again, some people find inpatient stays. So I'm talking now about mental hospitals, as people often refer to them, inpatient psychiatric facilities. Again, some people find them very helpful and other people don't. It really varies, you know, across the board. But if you are admitted, there are usually two ways to get admitted to a psychiatric facility. Number one, you get admitted as a voluntary patient, meaning that you're agreeing to go. Or number two, you get admitted as an involuntary patient, meaning you have no choice in the matter. Now, for people who are 
floridly psychotic, detached from reality, or very, very risky to themselves or others. Sometimes doctors will take out something called a schedule. It's under the Mental Health Act, and it basically means that they can detain that person for mental health assessment and treatment for a period of time against their will. Not fun for anybody, but sometimes it is necessary. Families don't have a say in that. However, they can, of course, voice their opinions. Now, if you are admitted to a psychiatric unit, there is a mental health magistrate that you will see within a period of time of being in that unit who will determine whether you need ongoing treatment or not. So there's a whole legal process. I won't get into the legalities of that because it is complicated, but there's a whole legal process where if doctors feel like it is too risky to let you go and you're not agreeing to stay, they can go through the mental health court system and apply to keep you there. You have legal representation in that. You get to say your part in that. Um, It's not done behind your back. It's all done with you and you're given all the information and there are services, patient advocates and um, legal aid services that assist you in that as well. And if you're a family member, the inpatient unit social worker has all that information that they should provide to you. If not, ask to speak to the social worker. They are the experts on all of the mental health legalities in any psychiatric unit. Okay, so that's the highest level of acuity that we're talking about, right? So for people who are usually, again, you know, psychosis or mania, so with bipolar affective disorder, if somebody is really in that manic phase or very, very depressed, Uh, where they're too risky to be at home, then those will often be situations where people are admitted for a period of time into an inpatient unit. Unfortunately, some people are also admitted to inpatient units and kept there because they don't have stable accommodation or they don't have any support networks to go to or, or anywhere to live. So that can be an issue as well as it is with all medical fields, unfortunately. You know, we are in the midst of a housing crisis and have been for some time. So those are the main services. Now, let me talk to you about the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service a little bit more. CAMS, they're often called, but again, in different areas, they're called different things. Now, CAMS are a service that are designed to see people in the community with more acute mental health needs, but the people stay at home, right? So it's in community, it's outpatient treatment, but it's higher level acuity. The role of CAMS is to, first of all, assess and to monitor and to provide support and treatment for a range of mental health issues that are in that moderate to high acuity level. The professionals that work on the CAMS teams, they're multidisciplinary teams, They have social workers, mental health nurses, OTs, psychologists, uh, and they also have their own doctors, so adolescent psychiatrists and registrars. So these teams, their entire job is to help young people and families in the community that are really struggling with moderate to severe mental health issues. Now, being a public service, as I said, there can be resourcing issues depending on where you live. I've heard a range of mixed reports about CAMS teams and about people's experiences. For some people, they're very helpful and they experience a really good level of education and support and treatment. For other people, they say that they feel like 
there's not much point that they just get a phone call every once in a while or a visit every, every once in a while and they just monitor for risk and then they send them on to private providers. So, you know, there's such a range of experiences, but on paper, what those teams are supposed to do is to provide that more medium to high acuity care. So if you are a young person or if you are caring for a young person who is not severe enough to stay in hospital or maybe has been to hospital and is now going home, they don't need to stay for longer, then the CAMS team is where you want to make contact. Now, there is policies in place. Usually, if a young person presents to an emergency department and they are discharged home, the CAMS team will need to call them within, you know, usually within 24 or 48 hours, set up an appointment and start seeing that person on a regular basis and deciding what kind of treatment they need and monitoring risk and symptoms and all of that stuff. So CAMS teams do home visits, they do phone calls, they have appointments at their centres. Again, they have doctors and psychiatric reviews, they can advise on medication, things like that. I do hear reports sometimes that people don't feel that they get enough support from a CAMS team. So if that's your experience or if that has been your experience, know that you're not alone in that. I've worked on mental health teams, I've managed mental health teams, and there is a broad range of service provision level out there. So if you're feeling though that you really need more support than you're getting and you're not getting that from the CAMS team, so you communicate with them really directly why you need more support, what's not feeling okay for you, and if they're not giving you that level of support, then you need to escalate things in that department in order to get the support you need. So what that means is if you have a caseworker, so typically with CAMS, you'll have a caseworker allocated to your case. If you're not getting the response that you're happy with from them, then go to their team leader and ask to speak to their team leader. If they don't give you the response that you're happy with, then ask to speak with their manager, right? And just go up the chain. At the top of the chain is the HCCC, which is the Healthcare Complaints Commission. If you are not happy with the care that you're receiving because they are a government service, same with if you're not happy with the treatment in emergency departments or in inpatient units or in PEC units, the HCCC is where you want to go. You lodge a complaint and they will follow that up on your behalf and they will be asking questions. So many times I see families they link in with CAMS, they feel like, oh, we're not really getting as much support as we want, we need more support, we need more help. And instead of escalating the issue, they will often just kind of disengage from the service. They'll just say, CAMS, we don't want to see you anymore, it's not helping, and they'll, they'll just go it alone. That's really problematic because going it alone is really, really tough. You don't have the resources that you need or the experience that you need to manage serious mental health issues and risk. So I would encourage you that if you're not getting the care that you want, please escalate it. Don't be worried about being a Karen. Just escalate it because also if the service for some reason is not doing what they should do, then they need to be held accountable for that. It is a government department, so there are checks and balances in place to make sure that that service is doing what they're supposed to do. And if they're under-resourced, then sometimes complaints can highlight that and it means that the service can get better resourced. If nobody complains, nothing changes. So please be proactive about that. 
Now, that being said, being with a CAMS team, just like being in an inpatient unit, is not necessarily long-term therapy. It's not the same thing. So having a case manager is great. It can get you through that more difficult time. But for long-term recovery, you're going to need to go back and look at private community providers. So again, we're going then down a level to looking at those accredited, endorsed providers in the community who are mental health experts who you can see for long-term treatment. Now, they don't do medication. You'll still need to see your GP or a psychiatrist for medication. But again, GPs can manage psychiatric medications most of the time. You want to have a long-term relationship with somebody as a mental health provider. If your mental health issues have been around for a while or have not been quickly resolved. So you move through these levels. So again, just to kind of clarify, entry level to getting help with mental health is usually someone like your GP or Headspace falls into that category as well. So making contact there and then they refer you to either somebody in the, in the community, a private provider for care, or if your needs are higher, then we're looking at CAMS teams or emergency and inpatient settings. Those are the levels, right? So GP and headspace at the bottom, then private providers, CAMS teams, and then inpatient settings. And people move around between those levels depending on their needs. But for long-term recovery, you're going to want to come back to community long-term providers, which are private services. So again, budget accordingly for those services. Cheaper is not necessarily better. However, expensive is not necessarily better either. But if you find a therapist that you click with, stick with them, right? And if you find like they get you and that they are great at working with your issues, stick with them and budget for it and keep that relationship. That might be a relationship that you have for one, two, three, five, ten years and might be really, really key to you getting better and staying better. So tons of information for you today. I hope that if you are struggling to navigate mental health services, that somehow helps. It is complicated. It's, you know, there's a lot of variation between the quality of service that you get in different areas. However, every area has that same structure of services. And knowing which services are made for acute issues and which services aren't can really help you figure out where to go and whether to escalate your demand for service. I would love to hear questions and comments. In the show notes, I'm going to put my email address. Please drop me a line and ask me anything. I'm here to help. Or if you are a person who would like to share your experience of seeking mental health treatment as a young person in Australia, I want to hear from you, okay? I really want to hear from you. So make sure that you send me that email and touch base and... I will hopefully bring you some firsthand stories from young people in the future. I'm working on it. And in the meantime, I'm going to do some of these episodes just about mental health services in general. But if you have something you'd like me to cover, please let me know. I will catch you next time.